welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we have Stuart Braithwaite. Stuart originally trained as an engineer and then graduated as a doctor in 2011 from Aberdeen. Worked for a little while in anaesthetics and A&E before heading away to New Zealand where he worked with a HEMS team down there. He spent 16 years with the RNLI working on the inshore lifeboat and as a swiftwater rescue technician and now works for Bond 1, one of the rescue aircraft based out of Aberdeen as a doctor winchman. He also does a little bit of CRM instructing, so has an interest in human factors and crew resource management on the side. Stuart, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So today, I think we're, we're looking to try and unpick a little bit of, I guess, background about the RNLI and the teams that work with them. A lot of our responders are sort of remote and rural based, and they're often water is around them, and quite a few of them are island based, so they have quite a lot of interaction with the RNLI. What's the kind of setup of the RNLI? Well, broadly, I mean, the RNLI is, as you might know, it's, it's pretty much completely charity funded. It's been around almost 200 years, really, in total. There's actually about 230, 240 lifeboat stations around Britain and Ireland. There's about 45 in Scotland. And basically, these lifeboat stations will either be made up of an all-weather lifeboat station, it might be inshore lifeboat and ILB lifeboat station only, or it might be a co-located like Aberdeen's, which is you have an all-weather lifeboat like the seven that we've got um, and an inshore lifeboat. So that's basically the makeup of it. The RNI itself staggeringly costs about 180 million a year to run the RNI, which comes mostly through donations and legacies from people that are left money in their will. So it's, yeah, to put things in perspective, it's a, it's a massive organisation with quite a lot of logistics to run it. It's a phenomenal amount of cash. It certainly and, is. Am I right in saying that your primary function is saving lives at sea, but you also kind of drift into other areas as well? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, saving lives at sea is obviously the main part. But over and above that, education comes through that and should always be a big part of saving lives at sea. So things like the Respect the Water campaign, which has been run for quite a few years now, uh, very successfully to good effect really, is part of the deal as well. They do international work, they are as well. And in the past, we have done international flood rescue. I was involved with the international flood rescue team for many years, nationally and internationally. So yeah, it's there's also lifeguard beaches that I haven't really touched on because it's probably the lifeboat sort of makeup is probably more important to basics, but there are lifeguard beaches around the country. There's only about five, I think, in Scotland. So again, they only run certain times a year, so you're not necessarily going to come into contact with the beach lifeguards part of the RNLI that often. So I guess for the majority of basics responders, the time at which they would be interacting with the RNLI crews would either be when you guys have fished somebody out of the water or sort of getting access to or potentially transporting a patient. Absolutely, yeah. And that's certainly when the sort of multi-agency 
system comes into play. So certainly having contact with basics responders, yeah, like you say, will come after we've taken someone out of the water. Or yeah, probably more importantly, and this is definitely true in the islands, is actually transporting someone. And certainly in the case of stations that have got all-weather lifeboats, then yeah, quite possibly the basic responder might be on the lifeboat or it might be the means of transporting. A lot of the time, rescues are done with both lifeboats. Certainly that's true in Aberdeen. You may use the inshore lifeboat to get into the nooks and crannies, if you like, the cliffs around Aberdeen, but then you may transfer them onto the big boat, either for winching up to the likes of ourselves or or taking straight back to the harbour. So, like I say, it's normally part of a big process, the rescues. So, starting off with the small inshore lifeboats, what sort of crew structure are we looking at there? How many folk are on board? What kind of background from a medical point of view? I suppose what I should do is start by saying how it works at the station. Initially, every station has a lifeboat operations manager who's in charge of the station, and there's launching authorities who are basically responsible for launching that boat. As you come down the structure, you then come into having a coxswain on the all-weather lifeboats. So these might be full-time RNLI guys. And you have a helmsman who's basically in charge of the inshore lifeboat. So there's really two main classes of inshore lifeboat. There's D-class IB1 like we've got Aberdeen. There's also the B-class, the Atlantics 75 or 85, like you might see up at Macduff. Uh, they've got an inland one in Loch Ness. So the smaller D-class, really three crew members, one of which is the helmsman, plus two others. The Atlantic, the B-class, slightly bigger rib, eight and a half metres, and, and you'd be looking normally to have a crew of four, one of which is the helmsman. So the helmsman's the one in charge, but the other crew will normally be medically trained as well. And you do very much work as a crew, but the helmsman's the one that, that's in charge. And what sort of kit would you have on a sort of reasonably small inshore lifeboat? So again, it's variable what's carried, but for the most part, everything you might need to at least do some kind of resuscitation, so oxygen and such like. In the first aid kit, it's actually fairly extensive. There's quite a few bits and pieces. We do carry things like glucogel, aspirin, GTN, salbutamol, paracetamol, some seasick tablets and things like that. We use Entinox at the moment. There has been trials done within the RNLI looking at Penthrox, which may become part of ILB only stations because it's really quite useful. As you may know, it's quite small, much easier than carrying a cylinder of Entinox around and quite effective. So that has been trialed, but hasn't been rolled out fully yet. But watch this space, it may come into play sometime soon. So like I say, everything you need, we do carry uh, as far as sort of airway stuff, oropharyngeal airways, suction, and there's no defibrillators carried on any lifeboats. So it's probably worth saying that you may see a defibrillator outside the lifeboat station but there isn't any carried on any lifeboats and um, the beach lifeguards normally have them but we don't carry them at the moment presumably on the basis that uh, trying to shock somebody on board would probably end badly for everyone involved <laughs> yeah, it would just be an absolute nightmare with all that water going around so yeah they've always discussed it in the past and thought about it but what they do every year the guys down in pool at the headquarters the clinical lead and such they they look at the kind of jobs that we're getting around the coast and they decide really what the best equipment is so they do look quite closely at, at new innovations and whether it's worth having things like a defibrillator and make the call based on that so it hasn't come into play yet and like i say i'm not i'm not sure it will anytime soon they have trialed eye gels the trial wasn't particularly great they did it on the thames in london where there's some lifeboats in the thames but nothing's going to come of that at the moment anyway 
Okay, so it seems like a really comprehensive advanced first aid sort of technician level pile of kit. It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I should probably say that as far as training itself, all our casualty carers, if you're part of the RNLI, you're either a casualty carer or you're not. We aim to have a minimum of about 12 casualty carers per station, but many stations have more than that. Uh, maybe that everyone's actually a casualty carer. The casualty care course is run every three years, so it's a, it is a standardised three-day course. It does have an assessment at the end. There's normally annual sort of update that comes once a year. It's actually quite a high standard, the casualty care course. I've obviously done it every three years myself. And, and yeah, speaking medically, it is a high standard. And like I say, because there is an assessment, there is a sort of pass-fail at the end. And it's, yeah, the guys are trained to a, a good standard. What I would say, though, is that the real crux of the analyzed casualty care is to do with the check cards that we carry. These were introduced probably about 10 years ago, and I would say they've revolutionised how we deal with casualty care from the point of view that, especially with my sort of uh, crew resource management point of view, they've vastly improved the sort of non-technical side, which has in turn improved the technical, I think, delivery of, of casualty care. It's quite important for me to see the guys on the boat being happy and comfortable to go into a situation and lead it if they have to and do what needs be. And back in the day when it was very basic first aid, I think a lot of people felt very underconfident in actually going into these situations, especially when you get quite nasty things to deal with. And so what these check cards, what they've done is essentially given us a, a very sort of rigid process of how to go through an assessment, a casualty assessment, and actually note down things and also make decisions off the back of it. So what it is worth noting actually to all basic responders is one good thing is to ask, is the casualty big sick or little sick, which you may have heard before used in other contexts, but that's the basis of our check cards is whether the casualty is big sick or little sick. And off the back of that, the decision is made, do we need to get this person to hospital ASEP or can we take our time and maybe get a better extraction or that kind of thing. So the, yeah, like I say, the, the check cards, especially the assessment check card, I would say has revolutionized how CAS care is done in the RNLI. It's such a great concept that I've had a play with these cards and they're, they're brilliant at just reducing down the complexity that you're faced with, particularly I would imagine when you're bouncing about on a on a pretty small boat in potentially some pretty big seas down yeah. something that, that's manageable and and as you say that big sick little sick divide that really is pretty instructive for us on the receiving end yeah absolutely and they're also something that can be handed over you can actually you know you can hand over the cards of which you've written obs and and all that kind of thing and so i think yeah certainly from my view having the check cards has made things so much better because people especially the person that's decided they're going to be in charge, they're going to lead it, basically just reads through the cards and tells the, you know, the other person what to do. Um, so do this, do that, and then makes decisions. But the decisions are there, the decisions are made on the check cards. And so it makes people so much more confident. So for me to watch a crew member standing back, following the check cards, prompting his team what to do, making notes on the cards and saying to the coxswain or helmsman, we need to go now, he's big sick. It's brilliant to watch when you see it work. So, yeah, I think from that point of view, if you come across someone from the RNLI in whatever context with a patient, big sick or little sick is, is always worth noting. Big sick, obviously suggesting that they probably need definitive care sooner rather than later. 
Fantastic. Now, a little bit like in my background, messing around on hills, your folks in the water are not going to come beautifully packaged and laid out in the uh, anatomical position. What kind of kits do you guys carry from a extraction and patient packaging side? So we've got a range of things, really. On the all-weather boat, we have orange basket stretchers, which you may be familiar with, which are great things, perfect for spinal casualties. Not so easy to get folk into them a lot of the time, but so that's just a standard orange basket stretcher. We've got an ambulance pouch, which is, again, very sort of soft to allow you to manhandle people into the orange basket stretcher. But what we have got is... I'm not sure if you'll have heard of it, but the PS1 stretcher, which is, is basically an extraction stretcher. It's, a, it's similar to the Neil Robertson kind of idea, but it's semi-rigid. So it's not really for use with spinal injuries if you've got an orange basket available. But if it's all you've got, it's rolled up from top to bottom. So it actually compacts down quite small. So it fits in the ILB is absolutely fine. But it's a great bit of kit, a really, really good bit of kit. You can drag it along. Uh, rocks and grass and you can float it in the water with a few people it's easy to get folk into it we say it's semi-rigid so not fully sort of spinal but actually the way it's designed means that you do have quite a bit of rigidity so yeah it's a brilliant stretcher and it also it's perfect for for example if i turned up and the guys had packaged a patient in the PS1 stretcher, it can go straight into a litter stretcher and winched up. So it's it's a really, really useful bit of kit. It kind of leads us nicely into thinking a little bit about shared jobs. If you guys are going to end up transporting a patient from, let's say, one of the islands back to definitive care, what kind of packaging, how can we help in terms of presenting a patient that's going to be in a good position to go into the boat? I guess it, it probably depends on what boat it is. More than likely, that's going to be a, a big all-weather boat, a bit like the Severn that we've got in Aberdeen, or maybe a Trent, something slightly smaller, or maybe a, a Shannon class, which is one of the newer, slightly smaller, but jet-powered boats. So it does kind of depend a little bit where the patient would normally go, and it depends on the state of the patient. But I think having them so that they can either be put straight into orange basket stretcher or something like that is probably the easiest. The orange basket stretcher is the best thing for moving a patient that's non-ambulant around the lifeboat and getting them into the lifeboat because it's quite protective as well. So I would say anything that you can help to actually get someone into one of our orange basket stretchers is probably the way forward from a start. Now, from bitter experience, it's probably worth pointing out that scoops and orange basket stretchers are not a great combination. They're a very poor combination. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so, yeah, we carry an ambulance pouch. So it's just fabric uh, with some handles. Anything that you may have like that, that can be the last thing that you could leave with us, is probably the best means to get someone into an orange basket stretcher. But again, like everything, you just have to work with whatever you've got. But that would be, if we're transporting a non-ambulant patient in an all-weather lifeboat, then more than likely they'll be in an orange basket stretcher. So whatever makes it easier to get into there, I think is ideal. And what about in terms of if you're going to need to escort a patient back from one of the islands, in terms of personal preparation stuff for us, what would you suggest before getting on a lifeboat? Very little, really. I mean, once you get in a lifeboat, you're pretty much in the hands of us as lifeboat crew, which you would hope would look after you very well. So I think it's really just being prepared. If you're not a great sea traveller, then perhaps if you do have something you can take. Like I said, we carry stuff in our first aid kit on the boat. So if that is an issue, you can take something. 
if we don't have a spare set of gear for you, then obviously it's best all-weather gear that you can muster together. Yeah, if we know it's going to be a transfer, then we can certainly look into a set of gear for whoever's going with them. It really is about listening to, to what the crew tell you and sitting where you should sit and keeping away from certain parts of the boat that are more likely to get washed over the side. All-weather lifeboats, by their nature, because they're all self-writing, as in they should, if they go over, come back up again, assuming you shut the doors. Because they're of that nature, they're very buoyant boats. And so, yeah, you have to remember that. So what you find is it might be bobbing about like a cork. So the sooner you get in and if the weather's that bad and everyone has to strap in, then like I say, you just listen to the crew and go with what they tell you. They will look after you. They know you're there and you're their responsibility. So just follow them would be my best advice, I think. Fantastic. And just to touch on some of the other stuff, there's a little bit more in the way of lock-based lifeboat activity in certain parts of the country, and there's the flood aspects as well. Do you guys do a lot of that kind of work? Yeah, so like I touched on earlier, uh, Loch Ness have got a, a lifeboat, uh, an Atlantic, and are very busy. So there's that side of things. The flood rescue side of things I've been involved with for many years has taken a bit of a back seat at the moment. There's often lots of reshuffling going on as far as the flood rescue side of things, uh, mainly because the government changes its policy from year to year about how we get involved. Most of the flood rescue stuff, especially in Scotland, is done by the Fire and Rescue Service. We have done things in the past, but like I say, it's pretty much taken a bit of a backseat at the moment, as has the, the international flood rescue. The RNLI still has a flood rescue aspect, but it's more focused down south, so fairly limited at the moment. If you're looking for coastal rescues, obviously that comes to the Coast Guard cliff rescue teams. So we do work obviously very closely with the cliff rescue teams and we'll often end up packaging patients together and getting them off the best way we think possible. So yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. Now, we've been asking all the folk that come on to this podcast to give us kind of three top tips, in your case, I guess, for working in conjunction with the RNLI, things that we can do to make your life easier or things that we can perhaps prepare before you get there. What would your suggestions be? Oh, we, we certainly covered the, the check cards and how useful they are. So they can be really useful to basics responders as well. And like I say, we, we're happy to hand them over as almost like documentation of what's been happening with the patient. So that's certainly number one is ask to either have a look at the check cards or ask if you can take them away if you want some more you know extensive documentation about the patient. It also lists what drugs they have had and that kind of thing. So quite useful, especially when it comes to trying to do a handover and particularly bad weather day. So that's one thing I think probably stress. If you're getting involved with the RNLI or, or sort of doing jobs together or you end up you had let's say during a transport from the islands, then certainly listen to the lifeboat crew and yeah, just follow whatever they ask you to do. So I suppose maybe a third point would be utilize our guys. We're generally very happy to help out. We're always trying to help out. There's nothing that we won't think about in certain situations to help. We're always quite keen to have multi-agency discussions about the best way to do things. So if you, you turn up and you think there's a better way to do something, then I would certainly just discuss it. I'd like to think around the country, we're all quite good at coming to a joint decision and doing the right thing for the casualty, I think would be good advice. And yeah, just good to know that the training standard is quite high, I would say, within the RNLI as far as, as medically. And we do have quite a lot of stuff. So yeah, use us, use us as you see fit, basically. I know it's, it's one of those things that, that as a land-focused person, in terms of extracting casualties, I always look what's around in terms of the land. But actually, you know, in a lot of places, 
access by sea is, is potentially going to be significantly easier and smoother for the patient. So I guess that having that knowledge that you guys are out there and, and a rough understanding of, of your kind of kit and capabilities is really useful. Yeah, absolutely. And as you know yourself, there's always many different ways to do something and trying to work out which is the safest and easiest. It's not always straightforward and does always take a bit of effort. And again, you know, weather conditions obviously change from day to day. You don't know what it's going to be like. As far as what we do when it comes to how how much we can do in certain weather states, you know, going in and around the cliffs, especially things like that, then again, that's really just to do with how the casualty is and how quickly they need to get out of there, basically. Again, yeah, it's, it's always worth knowing that we are around and available. And so anything that's close to land or around the cliffs or anything like that, then there's a potential that we may not necessarily be able to get in but we'll certainly have a go if we can and help out i guess probably the last thing just to touch on is if we're at a job where we think that you guys could be useful either for some advice or in terms of a physical assistance how do we get in contact with you so the best way really is to speak to the coast guard operations unit if you've got a, a number of the coast guard obviously you can get to them by just going sort of through the landline probably what i advise you to do is if you're a basic responder, maybe have a note of your local sort of lifeboat stations, uh, operations manager, or even get in touch with them and say, look, I'm, I'm out here. I just wanted to know, you know, what the best way is. Every station works slightly differently, but the normally the best way is if you can get a number for the Coast Guard operations room, whether that's Aberdeen or whether it's a store away, then if you've got a number for them, then that's normally the best way to at least try and instigate things or, or have a discussion with them about getting a lifeboat asset, I would say. And I guess presumably the control rooms and dispatch rooms will be able to make that link as well if needs be. Yeah, absolutely. So I think whoever you end up speaking to, whether it's the police operations room or whether it's Coast Guard operations room, they normally have good links with each other. The Coast Guard, I should, probably should have said right at the start, the Coast Guard, the MCA, they're responsible for launching us in the sense that what they normally do is they contact our operations manager who will then launch the lifeboats or decide which boats to send whether one two or both you know or both of them so all of our directions basically come from then initially uh, whether directly or, or indirectly so whenever an incident is ongoing it's the coast guard operations room that will be dealing with the incident so they should have oversight really of of all the assets available and should be able to at least direct you as to what the situation is. Can we get a lifeboat or are they busy doing something else or, or that sort of thing? Well, Stuart, thanks so much for coming on and, and giving us a rundown of, of both the ONLI and the medical capability that you guys have got. Not at all. I'm glad I could help out. Nice to speak to you. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.